the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yeah, longest-running, that's a polite way of saying an old guy. Good, <laughs> good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is... Oh, what? No, Thursday. I was going to say Wednesday for some reason. We got back into the time machine all of a sudden. It is a Thursday, five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. Welcome to another edition of Lifeline. We are here doing our best Monday through Friday at this time to address issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. And our aim is to do more of the same today. Hey, coming up a little bit later on, we're going to be joined by our good buddy Ron Rhodes. Ron is probably one of the, if not the, leading Christian apologist in America today. He's written more than 70, 70 best-selling books. I know people that haven't even read 70 books, let alone written 70 bestsellers. His latest, Israel on High Alert. What can we expect next in the Middle East? It is a solid biblical look at Bible prophecy and the headline news. And of course, Middle East in the news again today related to Syria. Latest word is that the French apparently now have irrefutable evidence that, yes, indeed, chemical weapons were used on Syrian citizens by the regime. Of course, what to do about it? We'll talk about all that and more when Ron Rhodes joins us a little bit later on in our number one tonight. As we lead things off, as you are aware, we are in an election year. Midterm elections to some folks are kind of eeyore. They tend to show up more when there's big things at stake, like voting for presidents. But this is a critical year. Not only will we vote for all of the midterm members of the House of Representatives and the Senate that come up on the uh, six-year cycle, we'll also vote for the next governor of California. Now, I know for many of us, it seems to be difficult to remember a time in California when anybody other than a guy whose last name is Brown (laughs) ran the state, considering the fact that Jerry Brown will finally and mercifully be termed out of office after serving as the only governor in the history of California to be in the governor's mansion, or at least in the governor's office, not always in the mansion, historically, for a sum total of four full terms. Even beats Franklin Roosevelt in that. Roosevelt was elected to four terms, but of course didn't finish out his fourth term. Jerry Brown did. What comes up next? Well, we're going to find out And we'll find out, most importantly, why this is a pivotal election at many levels for pro-life people. Joining me is the Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, Brian Johnston. Brian, as always, a delight and an education to have you join us on the program. Let's first back up for a minute. When we talk about the broader issue of elections, the whole political process, and um, pro-lifers, why should pro-life people be attune to what's going on politically in California. Craig, it's always a pleasure. You're exactly right to ask that, because 
something you will find, and I'm sure every listener will find, that if they ask friends and neighbors and even people, maybe even your own church, if you're pro-life, a lot of people will say, yeah, of course I'm pro-life. And what happens is that they're actually defining it their own way in their own mind. But the right to life, and when we talk about the right to life, we're actually talking about, and the founders, when they coined that phrase, they're talking about a legal right that needs to be protected by the government. And that was the case before 1973. The famous Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton decisions took away that right in every state for children in the womb to have any consideration, any protection. And so it's a very specific civic issue, really. Not about our feelings. Again, it's very common for people to say, I've actually had legislators say, oh, I'm very pro-life. After they just got done voting for Planned Parenthood funding, well, I'm personally very pro-life. But they have a different meaning to that term, so it's very important that we look at what this debate's about. And the reason that we care about it as a society is because of that decision in 73, which stripped the ability for states to even consider protecting that baby at any time in the world. So we have to get specific. We have to think of civics. If you only want to help us find this pregnancy centers, that's a good thing, by the way. That's a good thing. But the, the ultimate goal is to end this wholesale, real Holocaust, really. And it's the laws that have done that to give some kind of consideration, legal consideration of that child for some protection for that child. And uh, even during uh, when Jerry Brown's dad was was governor, the laws in California were very strong in protecting that child. And they can be again, and and we had crisis pregnancy centers before Roe. We have them now, and even after Roe is overturned, we'll still need to help those women who want to keep their child. But what those laws say is, you know, we really don't want to encourage you to kill that kid. There's better answers. And so that's what pro-life means. It has a very specific, definitive meaning when it comes to society. And that's why it's important that as we get involved in society, we know what that at-large meaning is. What's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to protect those who cannot protect themselves. So that's why it's important that we look at civics, that we look at elections, and this, as you have said, Craig, this is such an important election for California because now there's a chance. Believe it or not, in California, we can elect a pro-life governor. And, and let me delineate one of the reasons why this is critically important. This is a story that we have been following uh, since it broke the news well over a year ago now that the California state legislature, in one example, and they are legion, but I'll cite just one example, where the California state legislature enacted a measure in California that forces pro-life centers. So think of the pro-life organization that you help support, uh, maybe the uh, Valley Crisis Pregnancy Center, or uh, maybe you're a supporter of Options for Women, whatever the group or organization may be, that is providing women in unexpected or crisis pregnancies with moral support, 
Uh, oftentimes they provide medical clinics that do everything from confirmation of pregnancy to sonograms and everything in between, um, along with support for women who decide to carry their child to term, assisting in uh, facilitating or getting into the right uh, organization that can facilitate an adoption, providing everything from uh, baby cribs, baby clothing, all of that, and oftentimes standing with women when no one else does. These organizations now um, under the crunch of the California legislature that, if not for a temporary halt because it's making its way through the court system, would be forced to essentially advertise on behalf of abortion clinics, as if to think that any woman in a crisis pregnancy anywhere in the United States is not aware that abortion is an option, at least from the viewpoint of the 73 Roe versus Wade decision. And now to suggest that pro-life clinics, often all run by people of faith, have to now and be compelled to promote abortion and direct women where they can go to get abortions free of charge? Really? Now, of course, this is being challenged in court, but it's one example that I would cite, Ryan, where if there was a pro-life governor in Sacramento, that governor could say, I'm not signing that bit of nonsense, and veto the bill. That's right. Jerry Brown signed that happily because he is, quote, pro-choice. But that's not a choice. That's forcing. That's forced government speech on pro-life individuals and against their conscience. So we're looking at a very draconian view of the law now. The law is no longer protecting innocent life. Now the law wants you to comply and force with the new cultural norms and values. And it, it was, and thank God, I really do, the Supreme Court heard it. And even some of the liberal members of the Supreme Court were been aghast as this was heard just a couple of weeks ago. So California has really gone a long ways and suggested somehow now we can come back. Well, it is possible. We've seen it on the national level, and all of us listening know uh, Donald Trump has his faults. We know that. I'm, I'm you know, everybody has seen that. I think he, he will admit that. But I'll tell you this, on life, the man has been extraordinary in keeping his commitments. Uh, literally every judge, he said, I want judges who uphold the Constitution. And anyone who's read the Constitution knows that the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment are explicit, that no one shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property, without due process of law, that they should at least get a trial, that the Constitution is itself explicit, really, in the right to life. And he said, I'm only going to appoint constitutionally supportive pro-life judges. Well, the other side went ballistic, but he's doing it every day. And even today, Planned Parenthood is having demonstrations about that. But it's really a principle, not just of, of our Constitution, of society. The reason policemen who are empowered by the law have badges and guns is to protect the innocent and to restrain miscreants who would harm the innocent. That's a basic element of society. So much at stake. And it's no secret because I know that KFAX has been playing it. We we have considered this carefully with the, the, the governor's race, and there isn't time to go into it. There's going to be 22 people on the governor's list. You're going to have a, a short newspaper article to go through and find out. But there's really in that list of governor's candidates, only one candidate has made a commitment to the life principle and signed. Other candidates suggest that they're pro-life. 
really, in the top two and very practical out of all those candidates, there's only two Republicans. Um, John Cox, a businessman, he's a very wealthy businessman. So he has the resources for this big fight in a big state. Let me pause on that point, Brian. We're going to take a quick time out. I want to dive a little bit deeper into this because, as you point out, the, the current field of candidates is beginning to look like the list of candidates that ran for <laughs> ran for the presidency just a, a scant couple of years ago. And it, it can oftentimes be very confusing, particularly when less than clear statements are being made by some of the candidates. Uh, this is a long shot, long haul requirement, particularly in a state like California that has a number of things that make it very unique, including um, being dominated by the Democrats in terms of voter registration and having the top two winners take all approach to our primaries, where many states it's the top vote getter from the Republican side, the Democrat side, whatever parties, and then those people face each other off. California, (laughs) we have to be different here, don't we? So it's the top two candidates, regardless of party, the top two vote-getters, which adds uh, an interesting challenge for voters in our state. We'll explain all of that, our conversation with Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, continues right after this. Right now, though, 517, we're going to step aside, turn the microphone over to Michael Bennett, who's got a look at your Thursday ride home. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. We are discussing the upcoming November election. And in addition to, as we mentioned, a number of uh, seats that are becoming up, both at the um, House level and, of course, at the Senate level uh, nationally, uh, we have the governor's race here in California. And so far, much of the, I think, presumptive notion is that this is going to hands down be a win for Gavin Newsom, who was the leading contender right now, our current lieutenant governor, although on the Democrat side, there are other notable names, including former Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villagrosa and our current state treasurer, John Chang. On the Republican side, two names, and you've mentioned one of them. The other is a member of the California State Assembly that I understand, in addition to not having much name recognition around the state, uh, Brian, is also a candidate that may not necessarily have the long-haul resources to be able to see a potential race all the way through. And therein lies the big challenge here. It's not just somebody who can win with the right um, sense of moral compass, but somebody that's going to have enough in their coffers to be able to lead all the way through uh, to win a race against a contender that, quite frankly, in, in, in the case of Gavin Newsom, has a considerably large war chest. That's right, and this is just a huge state. We're really looking, and I, you and I know that in the presidential election, there are quite a few candidates that I really like. But it really came down to, for a number of reasons, President Trump is president because, if nothing else, he didn't have to get special interest money. He, that's an advantage. And he had the resources, and he executed on that. And as a businessman, he kind of knew some very practical, down-to-earth approaches on that. And we'll mention, since you did mention, you know, Travis Allen is an assemblyman. He's been in the assembly for six years. He's turned out. It's very common in politics. They say it's either... Uh, up or out. And so uh, most assembly members actually will run for their uh, Senate district. Remember, there's 80, that's one 80th of a state, 
in his assembly. He's from the Redondo. Some, he's down from the beach city, Huntington Beach, I think. And so he's trying to make the biggest leap, it's never been done, by the way, in California, to move from the assembly to the governorship. And as you point out, he doesn't have the money, but he wants to move up in a big way. And one of the things that I've followed him, I've talked to him in the building in the, in the Capitol at times, he has a reputation for being indefinite. And suddenly now, in the last year, when he decided to run, and I always hate to see this, I said I've met many legislators on both sides of the aisle that have told me personally, I'm very pro-life. I would never get an abortion. But then they'll go and they'll vote. And you have to remember, you don't elect someone on the basis of what they say. You don't elect them on, on how good-looking they are or how well-spoken, although many people will. You elect someone for what they will do. And for an elected representative, it basically, uh, I'll be honest, it sounds complicated, it's not. It's a binary decision most of the time. And when you go to the legislature, you'll see a red and a green light. And when they vote, it's yes or no. And when you're governor, it's sign or veto. The one change with the governor is that they also are really much more important for a much longer time, because the enduring legacy of a chief executive in our system, whether it be president or governor, is the appointments to office, particularly the judgeships. And those are usually, at the higher level for life, very important. That's an enduring legacy. Now, we know on the national level we're getting judicial appointments that are very good. And back to Travis Allen, he's, he's promised to be pro-life. He's telling people now that he's running because he's bumping into a lot of grassroots Republicans, and the first question is, but are you polite? Well, of course I am. Of course I am. But his record has not been that. In fact, his record is extremely misleading. He's doing his best to go back and throw dust on it. But we've been around, and we've met people like him, and it's kind of sad. But he literally is telling people he's polite. But that is not enough. You must commit. John Cox, just like President Trump, we were skeptical of Trump, to be honest, when he was a candidate. But he signed very specific commitments on policy and, most importantly, on judges. And John Cox has done the same. That's very bold because he knows he can be attacked for that. But he's so clearly pro-life. And again, like Trump, like Ronald Reagan, there's a certain attraction. And in California, people in California know that you need traditionally-minded Democrats if you're a Republican, you can't get elected with Republican votes in California. It's not enough. You need people who are looking for character, and that's what's exciting, as you've outlined very well, Greg, is that this is unusual now, in that in our primaries, really, it's really a general election, because you can vote for any candidate. Whatever your party is, whatever the candidate's party, you can vote for anybody. So we're literally going to see, I hope, a crossover of, of traditionally-minded Democrats who are tired of the party, but for whatever reason, either family or maybe they're union members or something, they're blue-collar Democrats, but they have traditional values. John Cox is that Reagan-esque Republican who will draw those crossover votes. And it's not in the fall. It's the primaries that now matters. So there's going to be an exciting primary. That It's called a jungle primary, where the top two come out to be the, the people on the fall ballot. Well, that was meant to hurt us, 
But now, ironically, it can help us. But people need to know, Travis Allen is trying to get some of those votes, and the only reason is he saw the popularity of Donald Trump. And when he was in the legislature, before he had, was forced now to move somewhere up or out, he did not, he was not known as a conservative. He was, basically, if anything, it's, he was what's known, um, I hate to use the term, but it's used off, a Rolex and Rolls Royce Republican. But it's all about money. He's been known for his money concerns, but those who know the history of the Republican Party, the Republican Party was founded on the value of every life. The Republican Party was founded to end human slavery. So the Republican Party is not founded on money. It's founded on the principle of every human being has value, and they, therefore, should have the right to keep their earnings. So that's where money comes into it. But the premise of the Republican Party is, is not, oh, lower taxes. The real premise of the Republican Party is human beings are more important than government. And it, that may be a reduction, but it's exactly what our founders said. The role of government is to protect the lives of humans. Well, certainly, you know, as you point out, this makes this primary uh, of utmost importance because of sort of the, you know, top two winners take all approach. And in a state like California, where clearly um, no Republican is going to win clearly or singularly rather on Republican votes, uh, there will be values voters from all parties that will, will undoubtedly be looking for alternative candidates to what I'm assuming will be the presumptive Democrat candidate, uh, Gavin Newsom. Though, again, there are some other names, uh, other hats, so to speak, that are in the ring. Whether or not they're able to see their way through and cross the finish line in November, uh, time will certainly tell. But at the end of the day, that makes this primary, as Brian Johnston has outlined it, extremely critically important. Now, let me say right now, if John Chang and Gavin Newsom or Antonio Villagrosa or um, Travis Allen, for that matter, happen to be listening and would like to come on this program and state their case and make their argument before pro-life voters, we certainly welcome you to do that. And you may email comments at kfax.com or your campaign manager may do so, and we will follow up with you and be more than happy to afford you some airtime to make the case. Meanwhile, Brian Johnston has made his case. Brian, we appreciate the time and the insights. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And we're going to get a chance as we head into the fall campaign here uh, to talk to some of the candidates. No doubt we'll get an opportunity for you to visit with um, Republican candidate John Cox directly as well. We'll invite former Mayor Gavin Newsom and see if he responds. All right, let's see if uh, Michael Bennett responds. We knock on his door really loud. Maybe he'll come to the door and answer the question, what's going on with traffic at 530? Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. In Washington, D.C. today, President Trump says he will decide on a course of action regarding Syria, quote, very soon. Lamenting the world, as he put it, puts the United States in a difficult position on such topics. Meanwhile, the, friend, the president of France says his country has proof the Syrian government conducted a deadly chemical weapons attack. Emmanuel Macron indicated to a TV reporter they have proof that at least chlorine gas was used by the al-Assad regime. Dozens of people, including children, were killed by the attack on April the 7th, just about a week ago. The French are expected to join the United States and Great Britain in some form of military response. 
Middle East is a powder keg. It has been for many, many decades, and some would wonder, when is this going to explode? Well, our next guest has some great insights on that. He is one of America's leading Christian apologists, a best-selling author with more than 70 books to his name. There's people I know that haven't read 70 books, let alone written 70 bestsellers. His latest book is called Israel on High Alert, What We Can Expect Next in the Middle East. And Ron Rhodes, president of Reasoning from the Scriptures Ministries, great to have you on the show, Ron. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. You know, we've been kind of talking back about the issue of the Middle East, Israel, Russia, Bible prophecy, going back, my goodness, for something decades that I recall. There was talk about Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Russia's role in all of this and when these events were going to unfold. And we felt 40 years ago we were on the cusp of the end times. Uh, Certainly, in hindsight, we weren't. But one thing for sure, we're 40 years closer today when we were then, and there are a number of high-profile, almost troubling events that have sort of lined up that is creating even more pressure in this potential powder keg called the Middle East. Let's begin first with just your overall sense. As you're watching the news, the saber-rattling going on between the United States, Russia, over Syria, the humanitarian crisis that is building there with millions of refugees, what do you make of all of this? And and, and what role, if any, from your viewpoint, Ron, does it play in historical, I'm sorry, in biblical biblical uh, prophecy? Well, that's a great question. I think to begin, let's recognize that this is not just a geopolitical issue. Now, it is a geopolitical issue, but it's not just a geopolitical issue. It's a religious issue, too. And I say that because the debate, or the, the hostility is a better word, the hostility began the moment that Israel took the land again back in 1948. Ever since that time, Muslims, and particularly more radical Muslims, have wanted the land back. And it's the Muslim viewpoint that once the land is under Islamic control, it can never leave Islamic control. Now, here's the thing I want to tell you. Both sides believe that God is on their side in this. Uh, The Jewish people believe that God promised that land to them back in the Abrahamic Covenant in Genesis 12. On the other hand, Muslims believe that the Jewish people have inserted things into the Old Testament and actually changed the Old Testament. And Muslims will typically say that the original line of promise was from Abraham to Ishmael to the Arab people, and the Jews took that out of the Old Testament, allegedly. And so, bottom line is this. The Jewish people believe that God, the God of the Bible, has given that land to them, whereas typically Muslims believe that Allah gave the land to them. And so this is the heart of the issue. It's not just a geopolitical debate where you can go in and bring in world leaders and come up with a, uh, some kind of a treaty. But rather, because it's religiously motivated and both sides believe that God is on their side, well, neither side is really willing to budge on it. And as you know, uh, even though great efforts have been made for peace in the Middle East, no one has really succeeded. Now, would you like to know how that uh, relates to the biblical prophecies? Please. In Ezekiel 36 through 39, we find an extended prophecy from a prophet that lived 2,600 years ago. And this prophet begins by saying that after a long and worldwide dispersion, Israel would become a nation again. Now, here's the thing. 
Immediately after that, Ezekiel said that people, or Jewish people, will start streaming back to the Holy Land from every nation in the world. That's never happened before in biblical history. Back in Bible times, the Jewish people would go back to the Holy Land from a single nation from which they were in bondage, like Egypt or Babylon. But never before have Jewish people streamed back to the Holy Land from every nation in the world. But ever since 1948, that's been happening. Jewish people from every single country have been going back to the Holy Land. And the, prim the primary motivation for them is anti-Semitism. Israel is the one place where they're not going to experience anti-Semitism. Now, here's the, uh, the really important thing that I'm building up to. Scripture goes on to prophesy through Ezekiel that there was going to be an, a big, massive northern coalition, a military coalition that emerges with Russia and Iran, Sudan, Libya, Turkey, and all the Muslim nations around the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, and they were going to launch this massive invasion into Israel. Now, just think about that for a minute. Israel is only about 8,000 square miles, about the size of New Jersey. And Israel is surrounded by about 5 million square miles of Islamic Arab real estate. And so, really, the Jewish people have no chance to survive. Now, in terms of what's happening today, I think it's, it's pretty significant, because today, Russia already has alliances with many of these nations. For example, Russia has a 25-year alliance with Iran, and uh, Iran is giving about half a billion dollars a year to Russia to build up Iran's military budget. And for the first time in Iranian history, Iran is letting Russia use air bases in Iran to attack Syria. Now, that's pretty amazing. That's, that's just a, never happened before. And so you've got that alliance. You've also got the swing of Turkey more towards Putin these days, especially since an, an attempted coup d'etat against the president of Turkey, and the United States didn't help out, but Putin did. Putin helped the president of Turkey. And the very next day, uh, the president of Turkey started calling Putin his, his new best friend. All I'm saying is it does seem like the stage is being set. Uh, the pieces of the puzzle are coming together in our own day, for this future invasion, and we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't want to set dates on it, but isn't it interesting that Russia already has alliances with these various Muslim nations that are discussed in Ezekiel 38 and 39? And troubling, too, because we see the relationship, for example, between um, Assad and Putin, and understanding that alliance that almost everybody else in the free world uh, has not only been troubled over, but certainly, ultimately, very disturbed over Assad's treatment of his own people. And we know that it's created this massive refugee crisis. Uh, millions of people have been displaced. And uh, on the heels of the most recent gas attack, no indication that Assad is willing to back down or cease this kind of abuse. And yet, of all the countries that would align with Syria, Russia steps into the picture. Is there any political motivation here? I mean, you've, you've outlined some of the, the biblical motivation, but from your viewpoint, Ron, is there any political motivation? What, other than being a stone in the shoe of the United States and the West, what does Putin get out of any of this? I think personally that uh, Putin and Russia 
uh, have become expansionist, much more than they used to be. Now, there used to be the Soviet Union, but that fell apart. But now Putin is back at it, and Russia has become extremely expansionist uh, in its goals and its motivations. And the significant thing, I think, is that Syria is right on the northeastern border of Israel. You know, I mean, just get out your map and look at it, and you'll find that Syria is just right next to Israel. And if there was to be an attack against Israel, uh, one natural route would be straight through Syria into Israel. And the thing of it is, when you look at history, uh, there's already a precedent that has been set with the Russians and the Muslims working together. I'm sure you remember the 1967 Six-Day War. Oh, sure. You know, back at that time, um, you know, even though it was some Muslim countries like Egypt and Syria that were attacking Israel, guess who provided the military muscle, including the weaponry and the ammunition and the intelligence and the military training? It was Russia. And then back in 1973, you might remember when uh, there was an attack against uh, uh, Israel. It was the same thing. And then in the 1980s, Menachem Begin discovered a massive underground storehouse of Russian weaponry pre-positioned in Palestine for a ground invasion into Israel. Well, and then you left off, left off the list uh, Russia's almost 10-year-long war in Afghanistan as well. Yes, absolutely. And I don't think that they're going to stop. Now, uh, I think that what's happening today not only has prophetic significance, but it's also got the potential of really robbing the world of peace. I mean, even as you look at what's taking place right now, you've got France and the United States and, you know, Great Britain and, you know, a number of countries that are involved in the conflict. And, of course, Russia is promising to protect Syria. And so what you've got here is a global conflict. And if this thing escalates, what I think is happening is that more and more people around the world are going to be crying out for peace. They're going to be crying out for some leader who could take control of the world and finally solve all the problems of the world, including the Middle East problem. If there was somebody who could come along and solve the Middle East crisis so that there was peace between the nations, I mean, just think how awesome that would be. We know Scripture prophesies that such an individual will emerge, and he'll emerge out of Europe, the United States of Europe, in fact, a revived Roman Empire. And this individual that the Bible calls the Antichrist will actually sign what's called a strong covenant with Israel and will apparently solve the Middle East crisis. So all the conflict that we see happening today with nations against each other, uh, I personally believe is setting the stage for that eventuality. Any sense, and I know this is the worst question to ask, and uh, Ron, going back many, many years, you and I have had discussions about date setting, so I want to put in a huge disclaimer here that it's more of uh, a curiosity than anything else that I pose this question, but what kind of timetable here? And, and I ask that because 40 years ago, we were expecting this all to be very imminent. Here we are 40 years later, and while we're 40 years closer, um, a lot of what we expected to transpire has not yet. I look at the current scenario, particularly the tension between Israel and its Arab neighbors, and I think to myself, I don't see anybody cutting any deals anytime soon. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the scriptures uh, talk about uh, in in uh, Daniel nine twenty seven. It's a, it's called a strong covenant, and and let me just explain what that means in the Hebrew. This is going to be a covenant backed by military power. 
this is not going to just be an agreement that this Antichrist figure, that this uh, head of the revived Roman Empire, will bring to Israel, but rather it's going to be a strong covenant in the sense that it's going to be backed by a strong military, the military of the revived Roman Empire. And anybody that breaks this covenant will be out of the picture. You know, the Antichrist will simply take them out. Now, here's something to think about. There is very good biblical evidence for the possibility that this Ezekiel invasion could take place even before the tribulation period begins. Now, if that happened, and if God himself destroys this Islamic and Russian uh, army or coalition, that opens the door for many of the prophecies to be easily fulfilled. Uh, For example, it makes it much easier for Israel to rebuild its temple on the Temple Mount, where the uh, the Muslim mosque presently is. You see, if the Muslim armies are are no longer there, well, Muslim resistance will be much less. Furthermore, if both um, Christians and Muslims are no longer in the picture, if Muslims have been destroyed, the Muslim armies have been destroyed in the Ezekiel invasion, and if Christians have already been raptured, well, the two main groups that would stand against the emergence of a false religion are now gone. Mm. That makes it much easier for the emergence of this false religion. Furthermore, what's one group that would stand against the emergence of the Antichrist as a world figure? Well, the Muslims, because they want a worldwide caliphate. But with their forces weakened or taken out at this Ezekiel invasion, it's going to make it much easier for the Antichrist to emerge into global dominion. So all I'm saying is that that if, in fact, this uh, invasion takes place before the tribulation period, it just opens the door for just a whole slew of other prophecies to be fulfilled. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating when you look at it, because when you look at the rebuilding of the Jewish temple that will one day happen, Scripture says and prophesies that that will not happen until the future tribulation period. Well, even today, the uh, Temple Institute has already raised the money and prefabricated the priestly clothing and all the instruments that are used within the Temple. The Sanhedrin has been brought back into being, and that's important because the Sanhedrin is the group that actually chooses the high priest for the Temple. And just recently... The Sanhedrin has caused uh, has called for architectural plans to be divined or de- designed for the rebuilding of the temple, and they're also raising money right now for the rebuilding of the temple. So even though that doesn't even have to happen until the future tribulation period, isn't it interesting that even today uh, we see um, the stage being set for the eventual fulfillment of that prophecy? And when you combine that with what we've seen with all the nations preparing for this eventual Ezekiel invasion, it just seems like a lot of the prophecies are lining up, just like the ancient prophet said. The fact that we are having this discussion barely a month away from the 70th anniversary of the foundation of the nation of Israel and the increased in not only the involvement of Russia into the region, again, hearkening back to Ezekiel 38 and 39 and uh, scripture talks about God putting a hook in, in her mouth and pulling her down upon Israel. What do we make of that? Well, I think that uh, these nations, in particular Russia, are going to have their eye on Israeli wealth. You know, and in fact, uh, there's going to be a lot of plundering going on. You probably didn't know that there are over 6,000 millionaires in, in Israel today. 
there's tremendous wealth in the uh, in, in the sea, uh, you know, the Mediterranean. So yeah, having access to that port is also very valuable. And I would imagine allies in the region that could allow Russia to establish military bases, access to oil, are all very attractive. Very attractive, and especially when you consider that even today, uh, Israel is working on both gas and oil discoveries on its own land. Just think about the Muslim response to that. If Israel discovered just a huge, gigantic oil find or a gas find, what would the Muslims say? Hey, that land is ours. That oil is ours, and we want it back. And so I think that uh, Israel's wealth, as well as the strategic location of Israel, is going to be the hook in the jaw that God uses to draw them into this, this conflict. But, uh, you know, the thing of it is, is that God is the defender of Israel, and he never sleeps. He never slumbers. And God has promised that no weapon formed against Israel will prosper. And Ezekiel 39 tells us very clearly that God himself will destroy uh, this massive northern coalition. And you have to just think about that for a minute. God says he's going to give a tremendous testimony of himself in defeating this army. Imagine, if you would, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of Muslims moving against Israel, shouting, Allah Akbar, and all of a sudden the true God destroys that army, and then God gives a tremendous testimony of himself as being the one true God. Now that's what Scripture indicates. Now if I might just add a footnote to this, um, I want to say that God loves all people and wants them to come to repentance and come to believe in him. And so I'm thrilled to be able to say that every single day, uh, Muslims are turning to Christ all over the world. There are, you know, it's not a massive uh, uh, revival, but there are some Muslims all over the world who are turning to Christ every day. And so this is not like an ethnic thing. This is not something that is uh, uh, singling out one group of people purposefully, but it is this group of people that will launch the invasion against Israel. And so just as God would destroy any other invader against Israel, God will destroy this invader as well. Ron, in your opinion, to change a corner or turn a corner for a moment, uh, aside from those that buy into this British Israelism nonsense, uh, what do you see in terms of any role, if at all, of the United States? I mean, I know some have tried to finagle viewpoints that would suggest there's some role for the U.S. in this. But I have to wonder, other than the announcement recently that the United States would relocate its embassy from Tel Aviv to Israel's actual capital, Jerusalem. Does the USA at all appear in any of this prophecy? Well, you know, one of the things that uh, really got my attention when I was studying the uh, Ezekiel invasion in Ezekiel chapters 36 to 39 is the fact that when this invasion takes place, when all of these nations launch an invasion against Israel, not a single nation comes to Israel's defense. And that makes me wonder what happened to the United States, because the United States has been the ally of Israel forever, just about. I mean, since it became a nation anyway. And so what happens to the United States? There's a lot of people that think that perhaps the United States might become subsumed under the globalism that is established by the Antichrist in the end times. It's also entirely possible that there's going to be a massive swing in the balance of power, or shift in the balance of power from the United States to the United States of Europe, the revived Roman Empire. And if that's so, you have to wonder, 
What is it that might cause the United States to weaken? Will it be a nuclear attack? Will it be an EMP attack? Will it be the rapture with more Christians leaving the United States than any other country in the world? Will that affect the economy, for example? We're not sure about all those things, but it, it appears that there is going to be a shift in the balance of power away from the United States over to the United States of Europe or the revived Roman Empire. And so I personally do not think the United States is going to play a major role in prophecy, but one thing I do know, Scripture says that in the very end times, when the forces of the Antichrist are moving against Israel, the Scriptures affirm on a number of occasions, both in Old Testament prophecies and New Testament prophecies, that every nation of the world will stand against Israel, and every king of every nation of the world will stand against Israel. Does that include the United States? Well, if you believe what Scripture has to say, it would have to. Well, and certainly, you know, we know the policy, American policy, can change on a dime. We watched a major shift in attitudes and policy toward Israel just from the last administration to the current administration. So even though the United States perhaps historically has stood with Israel, we know that that can change. And isn't there a body of evidence to also demonstrate that the sense of the United Nations having their sights set against Israel uh, goes back many, many decades, although ironically the United Nations helped create Israel in 1948. The number of resolutions of condemnation against Israel is pretty gargantuan, isn't it? Well, it's just absolutely unbelievable. You know, uh, North Korea, who's been in the news a lot recently, has been condemned eight times. Syria has been condemned 17 times. Iran has been condemned five times, but Israel has been condemned 62 times. Just think about that. Of the 193 members of the United Nations, only 11 nations have been condemned. But of the 116 resolutions of condemnation, over half of them have been aimed at Israel. And so, so far, the United States has stood with Israel, but you know, Right at the end of our president, our, or our former president's uh, administration, uh, or before his term was up, for the first time in U.S. history, our president abstained from voting um, in, in supporting Israel. And in the past, all of our presidents have supported Israel when, when all these other nations have been condemning Israel. But President Obama refused on that last term uh, when he abstained from voting in favor of Israel. Now, of course, President Trump is supportive of Israel today, and that's causing a lot of conflict. After all, you know, the, the precondition that's existed for decades is that Israel is the lesser Satan, whereas the United States is the greater Satan. So when, uh, when, it's, uh, re- when the information is released that the United States is going to move its embassy to Jerusalem, well, just think about how that went over among uh, Muslims, and especially radical Muslims worldwide. Well, and certainly problematic for uh, the Palestinian Authority, uh, where now you have uh, two different groups that are essentially making claim on Jerusalem for being their same capital. That's a little problematic. Well, it is problematic. And in fact, the very week after uh, President Trump said that he was going to move the, uh, the embassy to Jerusalem, we had several major Muslim leaders say that uh, the Jerusalem is the eternal capital of the Palestinian state. And so they're not backing down, but I mean, this is, goes along with what I told you just a bit earlier. They're not going to back down because it's not just a geopolitical issue. It's also a religious issue. 
And I think that's the real point that we as believers need to take to heart in understanding that as much as all of this seems to play out in a highly politicized theater, um, that at the end of the day, this is at the core a theological issue. It is a religious issue, as Ron Rhodes points out, and that God has some very clear plans that, quite frankly, of what, more than a thousand prophecies within Scripture, more than half, to the minutia in terms of detail that have come to fruition. And so every point, every indicator is suggesting that the prophecy related to Israel will eventually come to pass as well. And, and I have to wonder toward that end, Ron, final question for you tonight. In relationship to the rise of radical Islam, or, or more accurately put, fundamental Islam between ISIS, the Palestinian Authority, Hamas, um, Hezbollah, all of these fractions and groups, uh, is there anything from a prophetic standpoint that ties in this rise in fundamental Islam as being part and parcel to some of these prophecies? Well, yes, I think uh, there's one in particular, because there's one element of these radicals that involves sort of a fundamentalist eschatology. And what I mean by that term is simply that there are a number of Muslims who believe that the coming of the 12th Imam, who's going to be sort of the the counterpart to the second coming of Christ, this coming of the twelfth imam can be hastened through Muslims engaging in apocalyptic violence against both Israel, the lesser Satan, as well as the United States, the greater Satan. So there's even a religious motivation to attack the United States and Israel today, because the sooner they do that, the more they do that, the sooner the twelfth imam will come and bring about a worldwide caliphate. And we know that's a big part of the agenda, and it, it's not a hidden agenda by any means. Well, Ron, we appreciate you spending some time tonight to shed some light on this topic. This is a topic that is um, certainly controversial at a lot of layers. It is one in which seemingly almost everybody has an opinion on it, not all of which are correct, obviously, uh, but one that I think we need to be very aware of, because as Ron has pointed out several times in our discussion today, this is not just a geopolitical issue. At the core, it is a religious issue and, for believers, a theological issue. A look at Israel on high alert, what we can expect in the next Middle East, and certainly what's going on with the current one. Ron Rhodes, the author of this new book, Harvest House, the publisher. You'll find it at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it online through Ron's website at Ron Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S, Ron Rhodes. Org. And our thanks to Ron Rhodes for being with us tonight. Coming up around the corner, we're going to get you there with a little help from uh, Michael Bennett. We'll get you an update on some headline news. Fern Tyler is standing by in our continuing series on the Parenting Project. Stay tuned for that. Right now, though, let's tune in with uh, Michael Bennett, see what's going on traffic-wise. Michael? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.